Jesus says, listen, I have walked this path before you. I died and I defeated death and I'm alive forevermore. You don't have to worry about death. I defeated it. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues in his current series with part four of The Seven Churches of Revelation. Have you ever wondered how you might respond to extreme persecution for your faith in Jesus Christ? What would you do if there was a threat to your family, a workplace termination threat because of your integrity, or an untrue accusation against your character, all because you love Jesus? Well, as Tom concludes his study of Christ's letter to the church in Smyrna, you'll be reminded that for believers who remain faithful to Christ, even when faithfulness results in death, they will receive a crown of victory. And this crown is not one that will sit on a shelf. The crown you'll receive is the crown of eternal life. Let's join our teacher now to find out more on The Word Unleashed. Christ reminded them that not only did he know of their material destitution, but he knew that they were spiritually rich. They had salvation. They had the Holy Spirit. They had the Word of God. They had peace of heart and mind. They had forgiveness of sins. They had the Lord Himself. They had a guaranteed eternity. They had everything. By the way, these people were the opposite of those in Laodicea who thought they were rich when in fact they were poor. These people were dirt poor, but they were spiritually rich. Christ adds, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now the Greek word translated blasphemy here can mean to blaspheme God. In this case, of course, it would be to blaspheme Jesus Christ by refusing to believe in him, by saying he's not who he claims to be. If that's what Christ meant, then he was saying that, that by rejecting him, the Jewish enemies of the Christians there in Smyrna were blaspheming. But this same word translated blaspheme also means to slander people. It's used, for example, in Ephesians 4 when it talks about our, our conversation with each other. And it says we are not to blaspheme. We're not to slander one another. I think that's its likely meaning here. He says, I know the slander against you by those who say they are Jews. You see, those who really instigated the persecution in Smyrna were unbelieving Jews. There was a large Jewish community in Smyrna, and as you read in the New Testament, they were often antagonistic to the gospel and to Christ. And they had unintentionally in Smyrna become the instruments of Satan. In fact, it's interesting, if you fast forward from this letter 60 years in the future, you come to the time of Polycarp and to his, his martyrdom in this city of Smyrna. And we're told by a letter that was circulated among the churches at that time that the Jewish enemies of the gospel were so eager for his execution that they volunteered to gather wood for the fire in which he would be burned and bring it to the stadium even though it was the Sabbath. 
After his death in 155 AD, Polycarp was called the 12th martyr of Smyrna. They were enemies. Now, let me just be honest about verse 9. Sadly, throughout church history, some have interpreted this verse as some kind of a bizarre justification for being anti-Semitic and even to using violence against Jewish people. That's just ridiculous. Remember, John, the human author, and Jesus, the one dictating this letter to John, both are Jewish. This was not encouraging anti-Semitism. Instead, our Lord was making two very important points. The first one is that being a physical descendant of Abraham does not make you truly Jewish spiritually. The Jews in Smyrna who persecuted Christians in the church, they said they were Jews, and physically, they were. But Jesus says they're not Jews spiritually. It's exactly what Paul said, you remember, in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. That's what Jesus was saying. They're physically Jews, but they're not followers of the true God, and they're not followers, they're not real descendants of Abraham. They're not stepping in line with his faith. He was making another point, Jesus was here in verse 9, and that is all unbelievers, listen carefully, this is so important to understand, all unbelievers, including the religious and even those who claim to worship the God of the Bible, are not truly worshiping God, they're worshiping Satan. You see, if you refuse to come to God his way, and yet you make a show of worshiping him, you are in the worst state of rebellion. Jesus says the Jews who attacked believers in Smyrna were a part, notice what he says, this is shocking, a synagogue of Satan. He says it's not a gathering of God's people, it's a gathering of Satan and his people. And they're not worshiping me, Jesus says, they're not worshiping the real God, they're worshiping Satan. That's what Jesus himself said during his earthly ministry in John chapter 8, verse 44, to the Jews, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You know, we're really tempted when we see people who are religious and they come across in some pious way even though they have not believed in the God of the Bible, they have not submitted themselves to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's very tempting to think they're, they're good people. Jesus says it's not true. They actually belong to Satan, and they're doing his bidding. Jesus assured his church. He knew what they were going through on his behalf. The implication here in what he says is that they were enduring persecution well. They were remaining faithful to him, and so it's a commendation of them. Now that brings us, in the body of the letter, after he commends the good, it brings us to an encouragement, an encouragement in the midst of their persecution in verse 10. Now, it's interesting, Jesus didn't tell this church what they really wanted to hear, and that is that persecution would soon end. In fact, what he told them was more was on its way, but he prepared them and us for persecution by telling us how to respond. And here's where we get very personal. If you want to know how to respond to the persecution you're already experiencing at home, if you're 
If you're in a home where there aren't believers or in the workplace or at school or wherever it might be, or as you think about looming persecution of a larger nature in our nation, how do you respond? Here it is. Let's talk about Jesus' encouragement in the midst of persecution. First of all, don't fear its suffering. Notice he says, literally, verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. I could translate that, stop being afraid of what you are about to suffer. You see, they realized that they were in persecution, but it was likely to intensify, and they were fearful. You understand that? I think if you're human, you understand that. Are you convinced in your heart and mind that we are facing as believers imminent persecution in our own country? And are you afraid of what that might mean for you and those you love? Jesus says, stop. Stop being afraid. The question is how? How can we stop being afraid of persecution? Well, I love what unfolds because Jesus tells us, Here's how you can stop being afraid. First of all, remind yourself that Jesus knows and ultimately controls the details of your persecution. He knows and ultimately controls the details of your persecution. Notice again verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And then he tells them what it is. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested. You'll have tribulation for 10 days. Jesus knew exactly what persecution lay ahead for them, and he does for us as well. He does for you. But it's more than just knowledge. It's also part of his sovereign purpose. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, we read, Therefore, those also who suffer, notice this, according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In context, he's not talking about physical suffering from some disease, although certainly that would be included. But in context, he's talking about suffering persecution. It's according to the will of God. Jesus knows. You believe that? Jesus knows what persecution you currently face, and he knows what you're going to face and he is in control of it. It will only come in his sovereign will. Secondly, you can not fear, you can stop fearing if you remind yourself that Jesus will be with you in your suffering. He will be with you in your suffering. I love Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The idea is life's dark valleys. It's not talking about just death talking about the deepest, darkest valleys of life. Remember the images of a shepherd. And if you've been to Israel, you know that that land, when rain falls, it has nowhere to go into that, in that hard soil, and so it creates gullies. They call them wadis, dry riverbeds. And if a, if a shepherd wanted to lead his sheep from one good pasture to another, guess what? He's got to take his sheep down through that wadi, through that deep, dark valley, up to the other side in order to get to that new pasture. And David says, the Lord does that with me. Sometimes he takes me through deep, dark valleys in this life, and so does he you as well. And he says, even when that happens, I fear no evil. Why? For you 
are with me. You are with me. Remind yourself that Jesus will be with you in your suffering. I love this in Acts 9. You remember on the Damascus Road, he talks to to Paul, to Saul at the time, and he says to him, you know, stop persecuting me. And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, notice this, whom you are persecuting. Jesus was in heaven. But Jesus identified with his people. He was with them in their suffering. When we suffer, Christ suffers. 2 Corinthians 4, 9, Paul says, we are persecuted, but never forsaken. Never forsaken. Hebrews 13.5 says, He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. If you want to stop fearing persecution, then remind yourself that Jesus will be with you in your suffering. Thirdly, remind yourself that Jesus will give you courage through His Spirit. He's going to give you courage through His Spirit. You know, I think if we're honest with ourselves... We have a couple of fears about persecution, and it's not even about the suffering itself. It's about how we might respond. And Jesus says, you don't need to fear that. I'm going to give you courage. You find yourself asking, will I have the courage to respond? Well, if you'll rely on the Lord, he's going to give you that courage. You remember in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said to his Disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. He says, listen, you depend not on yourself and your own courage and your own intelligence. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you courage to speak. And of course, that's exactly what happened as Mike reminded us a couple of weeks ago in his message on Acts chapter 4, Acts 4, 7, and 8, when they had placed Peter and John in the center, they began to inquire, by what power and what name have you, you healed this man? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he goes on to tell them about the exclusivity of Christ in the gospel. What happened? What happened from that bonfire on, on early Friday morning of the Passion Week to Pentecost? The answer is, it, was, it wasn't Peter. It was the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And if you're going to face persecution, it won't be because you're such a courageous person. It'll be because Jesus will do what He's promised, and He'll give you courage through His Spirit. And then you don't have to fear its suffering, number four, because Jesus will preserve your faith through persecution. I think this is another fear we have. Am I going to be one of those people that abandons my faith in the midst of, of suffering and persecution? Not if you're a real believer. Not ultimately. Oh, you might temporarily waver, but ultimately you're going to, you're going to stay true because Jesus promises it. Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He wants to destroy your faith. And Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus, in his current intercessory work, does the same thing for us. Oh, read church history. There are times when, when people find themselves facing persecution and they waver. You, you remember, there are those who, who give in. But if they're in Christ, what ultimately happens? They come back 
and they express that courage. Why? Because Christ has promised to preserve our faith even through persecution. So you don't have to fear. If you're going to respond rightly to persecution, don't fear its suffering. Secondly, don't mistake its source. Don't mistake its source. Verse 10, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. This is a common Old Testament name for Satan. It's, it's diabolos. It means the adversary, the one who slanders. He's behind persecution. Although God is sovereign over all things, including the actions of Satan, Jesus here said that it was Satan who would cast some in the church in Smyrna into prison. What that makes it clear is that Satan is the primary source of persecution. And there are other passages as well. I'm not going to take time to take you there. This will be on the slide. You can, you can go look some of these up. But he's the primary source. Nevertheless, he uses various instruments, human instruments of various kinds. For example, he uses unbelievers in the world to persecute. He uses earthly government and its rulers. He uses false religion and human philosophies. He uses unbelieving family and friends. He doesn't get his hands dirty, but he's behind it. He's the one responsible for all persecution. That's how it comes. So if you're going to respond properly to persecution, don't mistake its source. It's Satan and the tools, the unwitting tools that he uses. Thirdly, if you're going to respond rightly to persecution, don't miss its purpose. Verse 10 so that you will be tested. That's an interesting expression. We aren't told here who does the testing. Some argue that it's Satan testing the faith of believers with the intention and desire of destroying their faith. And obviously that is his desire. But notice Jesus doesn't say here that the devil is about to test you. But so that you will be tested, passive voice. I think he switches to the passive voice because while Satan causes persecution and intends to use it to destroy the believer's faith, God plans to use the same persecution to test the believer's faith to show that it's genuine. It's like James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Why? Because it shows he's approved. Shows he's approved. Don't miss the purpose. You remember the parable of the soils? You remember the soil with the, with the bedrock underneath it so that there was just a shallow layer of soil and, and the seed of the gospel fell in and, and it sprouted up. It looked like the real thing. It looked like it was going to be a real Christian life. And then the sun came out and there wasn't enough soil and it withered the plant and it died. And Jesus said, that's what happens when persecution comes to a heart that hasn't been fully prepared. They, they initially confess Christ, but, but persecution comes. And when persecution comes, they're nowhere to be found. They're gone and gone forever. So if you're a believer and persecution comes, what happens? You persevere. Oh, you might waver. You might struggle. You might fear but you'll remain faithful to Christ. You'll continue to follow Him. And that's part of the purpose. Not to show God that you're genuine. He knows. 
but to show you that you're genuine. Don't miss its purpose. Number four, don't question Christ's sovereignty. Verse 10, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now that's an interesting expression, and 10 days has been variously interpreted. There are those who say this is 10 periods of persecution under Roman emperors during the first three centuries after Christ. Well, they're better interpreters than I am because I don't see that here. Um, Some say it's an undetermined period of time. Ten days is an undetermined period of time? Some say it's a brief time. Okay, I can go with that. Some say it's ten years. Well, why didn't he say ten years? He says ten days, and I think that's the most likely. And if you study Roman history... If you study history at all, you find that it's not uncommon for, for persecution against believers to come in a brief, intense thunderstorm and then be gone. I think he's talking about a period of time that's unknown to us in Smyrna when for 10 days there was an intense period of persecution. He was preparing them for that. But the larger point that Christ is making is this. He had determined how long this particular cycle of persecution would last, and it was limited. The point is, He was in charge. He was sovereign over their suffering, and He is over ours, including even persecution initiated by Satan and carried out by His unwilling dupes. When you're in the midst of persecution... Don't for a moment question the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over that persecution and those who are perpetrating it. Number five, don't forget Christ's reward. Verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Wow, what a promise. Be faithful unto death. In other words, Be willing to remain faithful to me and not deny me and to keep following me even if it means you have to die. And if you'll do that, Jesus says, I will give you the crown of life. This is like what he says in uh, James writes in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Notice here He says, I will give you. That makes it clear that the crown of life is not earned, but it's given as a gift of grace like everything else we receive. Everything else in our relationship to God. I will give it to you. Perseverance doesn't earn eternal life. Instead, it merely proves genuine saving faith. Eternal life is and has always been a gift. Now notice what he says. I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown or the reward of life. There are a couple of different ways to interpret that, but by far the most common and the one that makes the most sense here in other places is the crown which is life. The reward which is life. By the way, the Greek word for crown is not the word from which we get our word diadem, which means a royal crown. Instead, this is the the, the word stephanos, which describes a wreath 
made of laurel or other leaves that was awarded to winners in the first century games, which, by the way, was especially appropriate since there were games in Smyrna and they were famous for them. The believer, Christ says, who remains faithful to me, even when it means his death, will receive from me the trophy of victory, the winner's crown. And the crown that you're going to get is not something you, you, you know, sit on the shelf. The crown you're going to get is eternal life. Eternal life. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of The Seven Churches of Revelation. Join us next time for part five. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the word unleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the word unleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.